<clears throat> Will you pray with me from the Psalms? O oh God, our rock and our redeemer, be with us in our words and our thinking. Amen. Here, in the middle of the book of Matthew, Jesus goes away from the crowds and the questioners. Leaving even some disciples behind, he takes Peter, James, and John up a high mountain by themselves. Jesus has already shown himself to be quite a character. He has healed many people, he has told great stories, and fed 4,000 people with only a few loaves and fishes. The disciples continue to be slightly confused by much of what Jesus says, including his most recent revelation, that he will suffer, die, and be resurrected. Hearing this, Peter tries to tell him otherwise, but is quickly corrected by Jesus for thinking too humanly. This is Peter, who Jesus has also recently named the rock that Jesus' church will be built on. With all these weird explanations and stories, the disciples must be wondering, who exactly is this Jesus guy? Peter called him the Messiah, the promised deliverer, but what in the world could that actually mean? Our story says that six days after these conversations about who Jesus is, he leads these three disciples up a mountain. And Jesus is transfigured. Now, the word transfigure is not one that I use often, so I wanted to find out what the definition of that might be. Google tells me it means to transform into something more beautiful or elevated. Jesus was transformed, full of beauty and dazzling light. Not only that, but the disciples see the legendary figures of Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. At this point, Peter, James, and John must be in awe. I would be if I was in that moment, like, like our kids here in the story. Peter says to Jesus, it is good for us to be here. This almost recalls the earliest scriptures where God pronounced everything good. Seeing the glory of, of God shining through Jesus, Peter perceives the goodness of God's love and plan for humanity. And Peter, perhaps thinking of his new role as the rock, the foundation of the church, searches for his part in all of this. Making tents or temples is something religious people have done in his past. Maybe that's what he's called for here. So, he makes a proposal. In our lives, and in the long history of Christianity, we, Christianity, we have asked these questions too. Who is this Jesus? What is Jesus doing? And how do we respond? Many answers have been proposed over the years, and I hope the mysteries of these questions continue to haunt us through our lives. Over time, theologians have reflected on Jesus' identity with many theories. Some thought that Jesus was only human in our perception, that all along he just looked like a human, 
but he was only a purely divine being. These early theories were eventually cast out as wrong, although interestingly, some of the early Anabaptists adopted ideas like this, seeing Jesus as a sort of completely divine entity. Other religious leaders over time saw Jesus in a sort of material way, made of two elements or two natures, the stuff of the human and the stuff of the divine were all mixed together in Jesus. Even others, more recently, have understood Jesus in ways that make him seem mostly human, really the best historical human that ever lived. In our rationally obsessed Western world, the idea of divinity can be difficult to consider in serious ways. Perhaps this is also why the transfiguration story has been neglected in Western Christianity. While Eastern Orthodox traditions hold this as one of the most sacred moments in scripture. Through Christian history, the transfiguration has been seen as a point where the divine and human meet. The eternal and temporal exist in the same time on this mountain. Both human and divine shine through the person of Jesus. One of my favorite theologians, James McClendon, who I believe Rod actually studied with, speaks of Jesus' identity by looking at the whole narrative of the Bible and the two big stories or narratives we see throughout the Bible. From the beginning of time, God is reaching toward humans, actively trying to create the beautiful world of goodness that God originally intended for us. Through the Old Testament, we read stories of God continuously reaching out to humans. God reaches out to Moses, calling him to the journey of saving his people. God even connects with an outsider, Ruth, drawing her into new community. The self-giving God reaches out to save us, and this is the originating story of the Bible. The second big story is that of humans reaching out to God. We see all the many characters in the Bible attempting to follow God's will. The prophets, like Elijah, call others to God's goodness and justice. Characters like Jacob reach towards God in dissension, wrestling with God's call. And others, like Hagar, reach out to God in the most difficult moments of their lives and find God to be with them through their suffering. In these two big stories, I am reminded of the famous painting by Michelangelo, The Creation of Adam. You can see a segment of this painting on the front of the bulletin this week. In the larger painting, we see the hand of God reaching out to Adam, the human. Interestingly, one theory posits that Michelangelo, Michelangelo went against the doctrine of his day to paint Adam with an extra rib. Adam before Eve came to be. Adam as the one human, both male and female. We see in the painting two hands of God reaching out to humans and humans reaching toward God. These two stories, 
God reaching toward humans and then humans reaching back toward God extend through the whole of Scripture. Yet it is in the life and the person of Jesus that these two stories come together in one person. The human and the divine stories are one as Jesus embodies the whole of both stories. These two narratives come together in the person of Jesus in his entire life, but we see this especially in this holy moment of transfiguration where the disciples, as human as they can possibly get, perceive the wholeness of the heavenly world in the human body and person of Jesus. The transfiguration story recalls for us the past, the mountain, God reaching towards humans in light and fire and cloud. Moses and Elijah reaching toward God in the law and the prophets. And it points us to the present and the future. Jesus as the connecting point for these two stories. Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Peter calls this good. Next, Peter wants to build something. He wants to set this revelation in stone. Peter proposes that he will make a tent, a home for the holy, like all the characters in the ancient stories. But God has other plans and speaks of love, a love so immense that it comes together in the life of Jesus. We are called to listen to the voice of this beloved one. The disciples fall on their faces in fear. I wonder why they are afraid when met by this great love and calling. One interpretation I read suggested that this is because when they are confronted with the wonder of God's love, they also see how far our world is from this beautiful wholeness, how much we fall short. Because the human side of these two narratives is complicated. We reach toward God, but we live in a world complicated by sin. Even if we live the most perfect life possible, we are touched by the ways that sin runs through our structures and functions. We are stuck in the muck of a world covered in suffering and pain, and we do not have the power to magically change everything. Without even trying, we are complicit in the violence of inequality and the destruction of creation itself. We see the brilliant light and love of Jesus knowing that humanity is fragile and full of failure. But yet, Jesus comes to them and touches them as only a human can do, saying, get up and do not be afraid. Opening their eyes, things are back to normal. They get up and follow Jesus down the mountain to join the rest of the story that we will look at through the season of Lent and Easter. Jesus tells the disciples to get up and go down from the mountain. Oscar Romero was a Catholic priest who lived in El Salvador from 1917 to 1980. He lived during a great time of upheaval and violence in Central America and spoke out against the human rights violations committed by the Salvadoran government. 
a regime that was supported by the US government. Many priests and nuns in this region and era stood in solidarity with the poor and were assassinated, including Romero. During his three years as Archbishop of El Salvador, Romero preached six sermons about the Transfiguration. In the context of his situation, he saw this as a call for Christians to encounter the shining light of the transfigured Christ on the mountain, but not to stay there. The call of Jesus is to come down from the mountain, bringing the light of Christ with us into the dark places of the world. As the body of Christ, we must shine a light on the oppression in the world and live in solidarity with those who are suffering. When we encounter the dazzling light of the two big stories coming together in the person of Jesus, God's self-giving love reaching out to meet our human attempts to reach for the divine, we are then moved by the beauty of this love to reach out to others, to reach into the dark places. Another image that comes to mind here is one from the Voices Together hymnal. I invite you to open your hymnal to number 780 and keep this open to look. That's number 780. The title of this piece and the author are listed on the other side of the page on the bottom. And you can also find a color version of this online if you're interested. This image was created by Michelle Hofer and based on an image from the Martyr's Mirror, an old book that tells stories of how the authorities killed early Anabaptist believers in the 1500s. And we are, we're going to have a show that original image up here. The story goes that Dirk Willems escaped, he was an Anabaptist, escaped from prison and ran for his life with captors chasing him. His captors pursued him across a frozen pond, but one fell through into the icy water. Dirk saw this and returned to extend a hand to save his enemy. This story has inspired Anabaptists through the ages to counter hate and violence with love and bring light into the most difficult times. You can go ahead and take that down. Yeah. Personally, though, I find the story sometimes difficult, and I don't think we can always draw universal meaning from it. Growing up in the Mennonite tradition with stories like this, I heard that suffering is a part of faith and that we must always love and forgive those who do harm to us. As an adult, encountering these ideas in real life has not always felt like good news. We all come from different places and contexts, differing amounts of built-in oppression and very different types of situations. Blanket calls to walk towards suffering or forgiveness can cause extensive harm to some people. We also need to be, we need space to be angry about injustices that we and others experience. 
Hoffer's refiguring of this etching, which you see in the hymnal, helps me to view this story in new ways. In the image, we see many points of light surrounding these hands reaching for each other, divine love transfiguring this moment. Other hands held by points of light surround the image, the community and the cloud of witnesses. In this moment, we glimpse the miraculous, the great love of God as the impulse to reach out against hate with love. One of my professors from seminary named Jana Hunter Bowman has worked extensively in peace studies and Anabaptist theology, especially in the context of violence in Colombia. She taught us to think of this as a messianic moment, an instant, a period of time where love wins and nonviolence in the face of oppression is suddenly and irrepressibly possible and transformative. The light comes down with us from the mountain and reaches into the dark places. I don't think we can always know or predict when these moments are possible, but I do think that paying attention to the light and beauty of God's presence in the world and in the life of Jesus can lead us to more moments of life transfigured by love. Like this image from Michelle Hofer, we bring the light of God with us, in us, around us, and go into the world, reaching out our hands to others. The hands of our community support us. We seek glimpses of the dazzling beauty of God, the impulse of love, and we can experience moments of normal life transfigured. The light that was in just one place at one time, is in all places, at all times. Isaac Villegas, who is a Mennonite pastor and theologian, tells a story about the transfiguration. He taught a class in a prison and met a prisoner who gardened. This man noticed seeds that would drift through cracks in fences and windows and start to grow. He saw beauty in this gift from creation in the middle of the gray concrete and convinced the prison to allow him to make a garden. He created a garden in the middle of the prison and transplanted these growing plants and seeds into it. Doing this, gave him hope, flowers amid the gloom. Isaac writes, he wanted something beautiful, something irrepressibly alive, so he transformed a piece of his everyday existence into a sign for life beyond captivity. Plants and flowers plotting a transfiguration.